Abandon all remote controls, ye who enter here. It's time to unlock the gates to Telehell. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, a filmmaker had a simple idea. To chronicle the exploits of a ragtag team of rebels seeking out to destroy a galactic empire using next to nothing to defend themselves. Aside from a fast ship and a mythological power that could help bring balance between light and dark. This was a story that would be told in a handful of episodes. And despite some of the fervent reaction it would receive from time to time, it still managed to become a cult favorite tale about fighting in space. Or at least it would have been had the story been released long before Star Wars ever did. We won't bore you with the details of how the movie and its eventual franchise pretty much gave everybody in the movie industry a new hope when it came to theaters in 1977. From various paradigm shifts at the box office, to multi-billion dollar merchandising up the wazoo, and even, eventually, finding success on television. The Star Wars franchise goes beyond definition no matter how seasoned or how novice one's fandom may lay. And before you ask, no, we are not, and we will never talk about the 1978 holiday special around here. Because quite frankly, everybody and their mother has talked about it at some point, and quite honestly, we wouldn't really be adding anything new to the fray. That, and it's January as we're dropping this episode, the timing's kind of awkward for holiday stuff in the first place. What we will talk about, however, is one of the lesser-known but still unfortunate byproducts of the movie's success. Those that either borrow, imitate, duplicate, or flat-out steal some, most, or all of the elements that made the original Star Wars an all-time masterpiece in an effort to try and make it their own way. And while there have been a few other space epics that managed to be their own thing, regardless of how much... inspiration they tended to borrow from the Force, I mean, the source material, there's one particular clone that we're going to war with today. Come with me, Andy. That is not a toy. It's the garbage control. Yes, but isn't she cute? While imitation is considered a sincere form of flattery, this imitator was considered anything but. And because of the fact that unfair comparisons would soon become unavoidable, this young Padawan gets catapulted into the dark side of Telehell. And before we begin, I feel the need to clarify something for this episode. Uh, would you mind killing the flare for a second? Thank you very much. You may remember a little while ago us putting out a list of the top six things that we would never review. Among the entries on that list was that of guilty pleasures. I want to bring that up especially because, as a reminder, there are some shows out there that are considered bad by many that have a surprising majority of people that actually enjoyed watching it. And the last thing we would ever do around here is unjustly alienate the fans of those shows. In the case of today's subject, this is really not a question about something being bad. But as you'll find out later on, it's really more a question of mismanagement. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the show itself doesn't have its flaws. We wouldn't be doing our job if we didn't point out their flaws. When we say this is a podcast about the worst of television, just remember that the pendulum can swing many ways. 
This is one of those times where our venom is going to be directed at some place you would not quite expect. And now that we got all that stuff out of the way, let's talk about another one of those unsung Hollywood heroes. Mr. Buck Henry. Hello, I'm Buck Henry, and I'll be the host tonight on Saturday Night Live. It's the last live show of the season, and anything can happen. I mean, there's no telling who might show up. Uh, Long before he became that guy who would host SNL twice a year during the 1970s, Henry was probably one of the most prolific screenwriters of his time. Co-creating the classic Get Smart alongside Mel Brooks, and then parlaying that success to co-write and get Oscar-nominated for the screenplay to The Graduate, Henry's career as a writer and occasional actor has spanned nearly 60 years. For the purposes of this story, however, we travel back to 1976. Perhaps because of how well Buck did during the SNL appearances he made at that point, NBC commissioned him to put together a TV movie for May Sweeps in 1977. Drawing from his comedy writing experience, as well as the success of the TV movie staple The Owl and the Pussycat two years earlier, the network pretty much gave Henry carte blanche to write whatever he wanted, which made the decision for him to write a comedy set both in the future and in outer space kind of questionable. But the network went along with him anyway. The premise itself seemed simple enough. Or at least simple without having to take a narcotic to help better understand it back then. It involved the adventures of the captain of a United Galactic sanitation patrol ship. A fancy way of saying space garbage man. His crew included a transmute, a being with male and female characteristics. A highly evolved man who was made out of plant-based material, which I'm guessing is how the impossible Whopper was made. A robot that suffered from mild depression, and a beautiful co-pilot and her clone who were always arguing over who was the clone of the other. Though the captain was supposed to stick to his sanitation patrols, he and his crew often met adventure with various beings in the universe. Now, if you were any other TV network, chances are you would have been laughed out of the business if you had to make a pitch like that. But as another friendly reminder, NBC in the mid to late 1970s practically had to compete with static and test patterns in order to get a higher rating. And this was before our patron saint, Fred Silverman, entered the picture. In short, they were looking for just about anything to fill their schedule that wasn't a Bob Hope or Johnny Carson special. And with little options to their name, NBC greenlit the movie. Now all that was needed was the cast. As luck would have it, Henry once worked with another future legend previously. Actor, writer, and director Richard Benjamin was cast in the original movie version of Catch-22 which Henry wrote the screenplay for. Benjamin was eager to work with Henry again, and upon finding out that he and NBC had a deal in place for this new TV movie, Benjamin jumped at the opportunity. One thing led to another, and Benjamin got the lead role as the space trash man, who by this point was given the name Adam Quark. Rounding out the rest of the cast was a stable of those guys who were in those things. Character actors who had extensively long resumes filled with one-season wonders and other small but memorable roles. The most prolific of which was Tim Thomerson, cast in the role of the ship's transmute, Gene, spelt with both a G and a J in the front for reasons you'll understand once we get to them. The role of half-man, half-plant, Ficus, went to up-and-coming character actor Richard Kelton, who by that point in his career already logged appearances on shows like Charlie's Angels, The Incredible Hulk, and Gunsmoke, among others. Unfortunately for the purposes of this story, Ficus does not appear here, so we move on to Andy the Robot, who could stand to take a couple tabs of Prozac, 
He was played by Bobby Porter, who was not just an actor, but more one of the most prolific stuntmen and stunt coordinators in all of showbiz. Finally, in an effort to bring in the male demographics a little, the part of co-pilot Betty and her identical clone, also named Betty, were played by twin sisters, Sib and Patricia Barnstable, who at this point were probably best known for playing one of many variants to the Doubleman twins. And very little else at that point. Double your pleasure with Double Mint Gum. Double good, double fresh, double delicious. There's no single gum like it. Okay, come on, nobody's perfect. The remainder of the cast included future Mork and Mindy co-star Conrad Janis as Quark's boss, Otto Palindrome, and old-school character actor Alan Caillou as Palindrome's boss, simply known as... The head. And trust me when I say that there's a lot to be said about the head when we get to it. Now that we had everything assembled, this is usually the part of the show where we talk at great length about the movie. Except we can't. We don't have it. As of post-time, there are several copies of the complete series on DVD that are currently selling for an arm, a leg, and one's firstborn. And if you've heard our list of the top six things we won't review, one of them was things that we don't have any access to. So it kind of leaves us in a bit of a quagmire. I will say, however, that when the TV movie premiered on May 7th, 1977, it was a big enough hit in the ratings that it was eventually given the chance to become a full-fledged series that would hit the airwaves in the winter of 1978. That episode, we do have a copy of... And we'll look over that one after the break. NBC 77, the year of the big events, the super specials. And the events will be even bigger in 78. Hey, some nights are gonna be special. Some nights are gonna be Because of the success of the TV movie, NBC did whatever it took to convince people watching that it would become one of the few hits that they had that was actually worth watching, even going so far as to put together a series of mock press releases praising the show's impending release. One of these fake press blurbs in particular wound up being saved in all perpetuity on the unofficial Quark fan page, which can be found at the website quark.name. Yes, .name. There's a lot of web domain handles that you don't know about. Anyway, it came from the fictitious pen of one particular reporter, who happened to be editor of the Perma One Morning Telegraph, Afternoon Tribune, Evening Star, Daily Planet, and Weekly Reader. Which, by the way, was all one paper. And we quote, Dear Boss, I've completed my assignment aboard the United Galaxy Sanitation Patrol vessel commanded by Adam Quark. When you asked me to come aboard and write personality in the news features on Quark and his garbage-collecting crew because of their heroic actions in blowing up the Gorgon Death Star, I had no idea this was the typical assignment given to cub reporters to break them in to reporting. Despite your cruel humor, I have managed to retain my dignity and a great deal of my sanity while aboard Quark's ship. 
Never mind that Quark sails blindly into any danger. Never mind that you can't tell Betty 1 from Betty 2. Never mind that one minute you're talking to this great guy named Gene, and the next minute she's turned into Gene with a J. Never mind that you have to ask Ficus to speak in two or three syllable words for the benefit of us who weren't raised in soil. Never mind that Andy the robot is a walking pile of junk. And boss, I know I had a point to make here, but never mind. I had hoped to be back on Perma 1 by now, but somehow Quark keeps finding new adventures. Like the time he and the crew fell into a black hole and were split into their good and evil counterparts. Or the time Quark was to have an extended romantic interlude with the sensuous Princess Karna and a space virus aged him into an 80-year-old man. Or the time he found a planet where dreams come true and all Quark's crew could come up with were nightmares. So boss, I hope to see you soon. Meanwhile, I'm sending these personality-in-the-news features on Quark's crew for the morning telegraph, afternoon tribune, evening star, daily planet, and weekly reader. I hope you have room for them. I know the masthead doesn't leave much room for copy. And boss, don't forget my byline. You know, from all my research in the library on Perma-1, these adventures we're having would have made a good video series in the 29th century. Too bad none of the primitives who existed then could have imagined what we'd be doing in the 23rd century, eh? Your sincerely, Woodward S. Bernstein the 28th. See, because it was the 70s and Watergate jokes were still a thing and... Oh, never mind. Let's just see if any of this mock praise can be justified. February 24th, 1978. Saturday Night Fever, both the movie and the soundtrack, experienced a seemingly inescapable positioning at number one on their respective charts. The Amityville Horror was the top book in the nation long before it became the James Brolin slasher film of the same name. And at 8 p.m., 7th Central and Mountain, we open on a spaceship in the year 2222, embarking on its latest mission. I, I should also apologize in advance for the wobbly-sounding audio in this copy. But then again, I'm in hell, so I know going into this not to expect perfection 100% of the time. Anyway, we begin with Quark and his crew using expert precision in getting the job done, with each new crew member giving him the A-OK. Put it on manual. I want this baby myself. It's all yours, Commander. Quark takes control of the ship, and he winds up obtaining a precious cargo, a trash bag floating in the inky darkness of space. Seven, six, five, four, Here three, we go. Two, one, zero. We've cleaned up all the trash in the Milky Way. Now, put her on Astro Track and let's get out. Here. We then segue out of the cold open with the latest in a list of future ringtones that the boss might annoy me with, with the show's opening theme song. And even if the video here wasn't wobbly, it would still rival Jim Carrey's most annoying sound in the world from Dumb and Dumber as the next most annoying sound in the world. <laughs> I'm honestly not sure if this theme song sounds like a rusty tea kettle perking or a canary being spayed, but 
Thankfully, we only have to hear that once. Act 1 begins with the future father of Mindy setting up the headquarters known as Perma One in a rather progressive way. I want to thank you all, ladies, gentlemen, humanoids, multiforms, polymorphopods, genuinites, and if I may quote from the First Amendment to our Confederation's Declaration of Unity, you are all equally welcome here regardless of species, life system, echo mass, or shape. Thank you. Thank you. Meanwhile in the garbage ship, Quark gives his version of the captain's log from Star Trek, while what I can only assume is his alien pet crossed with cellophane, oversized larva, and fever dreams is ready for its nightly meal. Ready for your dinner, old pal? Okay, come on. Good boy, Urko. That's the way. Eat him up. Eat him up. After that awkward bit of physical comedy, Quark continues his log and introduces the rest of his team. The second-in-command position is held jointly by Betty and Betty. One of them is a clone. I'm extremely fond of Betty. If only I knew which Betty it was that I am extremely fond of. (laughs) Our chief engineer is a transmute, Gene. Or as he, or she, is sometimes called Gene. And let's pause right here for a moment. Okay, quick tangent here for a second. I know we're supposed to be a show that trashes bad TV, but I would be remiss if I didn't once again mention the character of Gene, played by Tim Thomerson. As well as the fact that in the 1970s, TV and movies didn't really know how to write for the then-growing LGBTQ community. Back in the 70s, they were seen as outcasts, second-class citizens, or worse, and their treatment in the televised world didn't fare that much better, often forcing actors to play straight roles on most series. Don't believe me? Why not ask such reluctant pioneers like Robert Reed, Paul Lind, or Charles Nelson Reilly, or less obvious ones that didn't come out until much later in their careers, like Dick Sargent or Raymond Burr? It wouldn't be until the fall of 1977 when, for the first time ever, an openly gay character would become a central fixture on a primetime TV show. Albeit, he was played by a straight actor. Billy Crystal's portrayal of Jodie Dallas on the groundbreaking sitcom, Soap. You know, Jodie, when we were younger, there was no such thing as homosexuals. Yes, Jessica, the homosexuals go way back in history. Who? Alexander the Great was gay, uh... Plato was gay. Mickey Mouse's dog was gay? Now, while that was groundbreaking, homosexuality on TV was one thing, but portraying someone in the trans community, dramatized or otherwise, was virtually nowhere to be seen on TV. Unless, of course, a man dressed in drag just for a cheap laugh. With all of that in mind, Thomerson's portrayal of Gene, someone who Quark just described as a transmute who has both sets of male and female chromosomes, might have been one of the first portrayals of the trans community, or at the very least, the first example of one being portrayed in a positive light. Of course, if I'm completely wrong about this bit of information, feel free to correct me on our social feeds, Twitter and Facebook, at Telehell Podcast. But if I'm right, hats off to Tim Thomerson, probably one of the greatest tough guy actors of all time, if his IMDb page is any indication, for being one of TV's most unlikely of pioneers. 
and tangent over. We then get to meet somebody who only appears in this one episode, the constructor of Andy the Robot, Dr. O.B. Mudd, played by film noir mainstay Douglas Fowley. He lost an eye some years ago when he went to sleep for several hours while looking into his microscope. In his spare time, he usually works on Andy, a servo-mechanical android that he is determined to perfect. Someday. After more messing around with the bubble-wrapped freak of nature disguised as a pet, we return to Perma-1, where Mindy's father contacts the head and... Oh, my God! A palindrome here, sir. Sorry to disturb you. That's all right, palindrome. I was just, as usual, thinking. Okay. I'm not sure if I should be wishing this, but I wish you could see what this head character looks like. I mean, my God. His face is perfectly normal, but... Ugh, God, his actual head looks like a distant ancestor to the elephant man. I am not an animal! I am a human being! I don't know who was responsible for the makeup on this show, but hopefully he got a raise and then subsequently fired for... Oh, God, I can't unsee that! You know that episode of Seinfeld where Elaine is taking care of a lady with an unseen goiter? Well, try to imagine this guy as one of her future descendants. That was when I began my affair with Mohandas. He used to dip his bald head in oil and rub it all over my body. Okay, I think I'm calm now. I'm just going to look away as the head gives us the plot of the episode. So, proceed. An extraordinarily large explosion from the M82 sector seems to have propelled an enzyme cloud clear through Ursa Major's gravity field. It's practically pure protein, and it's metabolizing everything in its path, including gravity. I suppose you're going to tell me this enzyme thing is going to hit us full on and turn us all into little bitty meson particles. Mm, at about 1,500 hours tomorrow. I- I'm sorry, sir, I know how you feel. But, sir, if, if Quark could move the ship into the center of that enzyme cloud and set off his own reactor system... And create a nuclear implosion. Yes, it might work. Of course, it would mean certain death for everybody on board. But as you know, one of the responsibilities of those in charge, sometimes, is to order the sacrifice of the few... Uh, for the sake of the many. Yes, sir. Is it safe? Is it safe to look now? Is the man with the ruptured testicle for a head gone? Okay. Moving on. We finally get to meet Andy the Robot, as well as all the flaws slash comic relief he'll provide this sitcom. How's it going, Andy? Everything is fine, thank you. Thank you? You're welcome. Yes. I see. And how do you feel? I feel wonder. I feel wonder. I feel wonder. Oh. Just then, Dr. Mudd gives Quark some urgent news. We've got a spectrum rating that's gone right off the graph. Something's coming this way. It's emitting a totally varied wave cycle. If it hit us. At best, the ship would be anatomized, and we'd all be turned into instant space jelly. Isn't there a chance you could be mistaken? Yes. No. Act two begins with the crew getting themselves prepared for the onslaught of vapor that lies ahead. But first, 
dinner. What's on the menu? Special treat tonight, Commander. All your favorites. Hearts of Plankton, Hot Space Biscuits, Puree of Astro Germ, and Moon Snail's Flambe. What about a moistening agent? Uh, Chateau Alio from the Great Bear Constellation uh, 2117. Mmm, a great century for wine. <laughs> to put that last joke in perspective, Gwyneth Paltrow was a mere six years old when this program aired, so there's a sliver of possibility that all the items that you just heard mentioned may soon come to a goop catalog near you someday. But I digress. After dinner, Quark and Dr. Mudd continue to analyze the conditions that surround them. Oh. What is it? See something? No. Nothing at all. It's all black. Other eye, Doc. <laughs> what? I'm afraid it doesn't look good. What do you mean? Take a look for yourself. I can't see anything. Use your open eye, Frank. Oh, yeah. I can see it now. We then see Quark trying to tell Andy the robot the difference between an ordinary piece of machinery and what could possibly be a pleasure droid to him. What is your name? Please tell me your name. I think you are very attractive. Okay, pause again, please. This was written by the same guy who co-wrote The Graduate and co-created Get Smart, right? Because so far, not even a washed-up Borscht Belt comedian would use these jokes at even a condemned Catskills hotel. The setups are obvious, the punchlines can be seen by the blind from miles away, and not helping things either is that annoyingly intrusive laugh track. Oh yes, that too will have its day here soon. But just to nip it in the bud now for later, the producers are seriously banking on the hopes that the home audience will be conditioned to laugh at something that even they know deep down is about as funny as a boiled potato. Imagine if the show didn't have a laugh track. The quality might not have been stellar, but at least it would have been an improvement, because the audience was able to figure out on their own, without any aid, what the funny moment was. Here, putting a laugh track on just about everything is almost as abrasive as a buzzing neon sign. It doesn't do the material any favors. But again, this is a rant for another day, so let's continue. We actually get some plot movement as the mysterious vapor finally attacks the ship. What was that? That's the big thing that's coming this way. It's creating a gravity warp. Shouldn't we take evasive action? It wouldn't do any good. It's faster than we are. Give it to me straight, Doc. What would you do if you were me? Packed! A momentum that is immediately halted by shoehorning in the pseudo-romance between Quark and the two Bettys for seemingly no other reason than to pad out the episode with their stilted line reading and also give the male audience something to look at, while putting the TV on mute for about one minute. Commander? Yes, Betty. Adam, hmm. I'm even prouder to be sharing this experience with you than she is, because, as someone once said, death is the greatest adventure you know? Sure, but you have to remember that whoever said it probably wasn't dead at the time. <laughs> After that form-fitting distraction, Quark and Mud plan their next move. Look, we must be inside the thing now. If those hydrochemical readings are correct, it's as though we're being digested. By Jiminy, that's it. It's some kind of protein hydrolyzing amino producer. What does it mean? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> but it's got a nice ring to it. <laughs> We then cut back to Perma-1 headquarters where we... Oh, my God! It's Bullsack Head again! Let's cut out the good luck. It seems superfluous anyway. 
okay, I'm sorry. I gotta fast forward this for a moment. I gotta queue this up to the closing credits, and I gotta see who's to blame for my nightmares this week. Okay, play here. Next Friday night at 8, 7 Central and Mountain. And pause. Makeup supervision by a Mr. Ben Lane. Now, what else was he responsible for? Oh, I see. He was the makeup supervisor for Columbia Pictures. He worked on Bewitched, The Monkees. Ugh, a flying nun. Boy, this list is long. He worked on Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Oklahoma. Retired in 1982 after doing the makeup for the movie version of Annie. Passed away in 2007 at age 95. Well, I guess I can't fault a guy for having a track record that's several miles long. But even so, there had to have been some quality control on the design of something whose head looks like somebody's big toe if it was bitten by a venomous frog. Ugh, just... The sooner we get through this, the sooner we never have to think about it again. Quark and the crew are under attack, and with six minutes to go, surely they should have hatched a plan by now. Fortunately, we have a robot ex machina in play as Andy the robot once again tries to romance the trash storage unit. I love you. I need you. I want you. While the robot is slowly realizing that two out of three ain't bad, Quark comes to the realization that Botloaf might have accidentally saved the day. Look, Commander, it's that cloud of protein hydrolyzing whatever I said it was. It's gone after the cargo. It's having the feast of its life. And moving in a completely different direction. Away from our solar system. Away from our civilization. Away from everything we hold dear. Mostly us. And then, as an added wrinkle, just as they repel the danger, they get the notice from Perma 1. About a minute too late. But since things worked out for the best, chalk it up to dumb luck. Quark, blow your reactor and save Galaxy. Nice knowing you. Quark and the crew then give credit where credit's due to the robot that accidentally saved their lives and vow to ultimately make Andy feel more human. You're not gonna be just any ordinary servo mechanism. I'm gonna program you to genius level. You'll learn to think like we do. We'll teach you to speak like we do. And behave like we do. In fact, Andy, when we get through with you, you'll be just like us. What do you think of that? Much to Andy's dismay. Let me out! Let me out! As the show comes to a close... Quark gets some good news from Perma-1 that will set the tone for years to come. We hope... Congratulations for your superb work in the face of indescribable danger. A grateful galaxy salutes you. You are directed to proceed with your ship to Stellar Quadrant 7 and look for signs of trouble. Your permanent mission now is to scour the universe. Hey! <laughs> now we're going to see some action. Oh, and, and Quark. Yes, sir. On your way to Quadrant 7, would you swing by the small cloud of Magellan? They haven't had a pickup there in two weeks, and there are space baggies everywhere. So as the crew sets their sights for their next adventure, there's a question that I'm finding myself asking here. Based on this program alone, was Quark really as bad as some people make it out to be? Surprisingly, the answer is no. 
Yes, it did have some cheesy moments. Yes, it did have grown-worthy jokes. Yes, the Doubleman twins couldn't act their way out of a paper bag. Yes, that damn head makeup is going to give me nightmares for years to come. And yes, the whole thing looked like it was made for about $2.47. But for what it is, at least it looked like there was some effort put into it. You've got Richard Benjamin making the most of what he was given without chewing up too much scenery. You got Buck Henry trying to come up with a spiritual successor to get smart. And let's also not forget about the super progressive role that Tim Thomerson played in the form of Gene. So with all the pros and cons balancing things out, the question remains, if the show fell somewhere in the middle, what exactly makes Quark sin-worthy? I'll give you one guess. That's right. Our Telehell patron saint, Fred Silverman, is involved here. As we mentioned all the way back on our Super Train episode, Silverman joined NBC in 1978 as network president. And while his presence wouldn't truly be felt until the fall of that year, Silverman started getting to work in January of that year, when he began to systematically deconstruct the work of his predecessors, up to and including canceling shows as quickly as they went on the air seemingly for no reason other than to start things off with a clean slate for the fall. It didn't matter if the ratings for these shows were good, bad, or indifferent. If anybody but Silverman okayed the show, they would get the axe, whether they liked it or not. An incident in show business that would henceforth be known as the slaughter on 6th Avenue. In Quark's case, its demise was as simple as becoming cannon fodder for the two shows that Silverman programmed opposite, Wonder Woman on CBS and Donnie and Marie on ABC, which coincidentally, Silverman gave the green light to when working for that network. In spite of the increasing fan base and improved humor of the show as the weeks went by, Quark simply didn't stand a chance, and ultimately burnt up on re-entry after only seven episodes, eight if you include the TV movie pilot. So now that we've got that information in place, where does the mechanically reproduced space junk of Quark wind up scattered in the solar system of Telehel? Lucky for us, there are as many planets in the real solar system as there are circles around here. Yes, Pluto counts as a planet, I don't care what people say. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery! To quote the late movie producer Robert Evans, among others who used a version of this quote, if you live by the sword, you can damn well die by the sword. The sword in this case is NBC, who picked up the series with a lot of fanfare after the success of the pilot movie, but then canceled it thanks to Silverman's wrath, as well as pulling a move or two filled with treachery in an effort to torpedo an otherwise promising show. But this is not to say that the show itself is completely devoid of any flaws. A minor one would be that of Sid and Pat Barnstable, the Doubleman twins, who clearly needed to take more acting classes at the Learning Annex and was otherwise along for the ride simply as eye candy, ticking the box for lust among some of the viewers. But that's second to the fact that the timing of the series' arrival was highly dubious, thanks in part to everybody trying to cash in on that then-new craze called Star Wars. And don't think for a moment that NBC was the only one trying to make that move. ABC would be guilty of this a few months later with the original Battlestar Galactica series, as well as a slew of other low-budget movie companies that would soon follow suit with their own, quote-unquote, original interpretations of it. Imitation may be a sincere form of flattery, but as long as there's something far superior to compare it to, fairly warranted or otherwise, the cries of fraud in the sci-fi community are going to happen no matter what. 
that, and I'm pretty certain most of the audience just wanted to tune in to see Linda Carter in her satin tights fighting for your rights in the old red, white, and blue anyway. Oh, wait, we already mentioned lust. Uh, never mind. Quark earns four out of nine circles of telehell. Despite the fact that this show was a victim of striking while the iron was hot when it came to the success of another budding franchise, it still tried to be its own thing. Of course, as it would turn out, even though the Force wasn't with them, the farce certainly was. Star Wars was not the only sci-fi entity that would be sent up on the show. References to Star Trek, Lost in Space, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and even vintage black-and-white serial versions of Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon were not spared from parody's touch. Luckily for the passage of time, parodies of space would be perfected a number of times by a number of people. Very quickly, my personal favorite space parodies in either form of media are Mel Brooks's Spaceballs, Steve Odekirk's Thumb Wars, and perhaps the one thing on TV that actually seems like the logical spiritual successor to Quark, Seth MacFarlane's The Orville. In the vast emptiness of the universe, we have found a fullness of cultural diversity and we become a way for the universe to know itself. Wow, that was pretty good. Yeah, thanks, I plagiarized it like nine different things. All of these things would not exist, however, were it not for the United Galaxy Sanitation Patrol orbiting the galaxy first. And of course, things might have actually worked out for the best if only- Don't tell me about headaches, Palindrome. <laughs> I wrote the book on headaches. <laughs> kill it, kill it, kill it! Next time on Telehell, with football's biggest event just weeks away, we direct our anger to a little girl who almost ruined everything once. Last night, somebody in the vast reaches of the NBC network didn't get the word. The result was that football fans by the thousands were roused to a cold fury, and some probably haven't cooled down yet. Until then. If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. The part of Woodward S. Bernstein the 28th was played by Robert Maurer. If you'd like to know more about the TV series Quark, especially the episodes that we didn't cover today, check out the unofficial Quark fan page at quark.name. Again, that's quark.name. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. There's now more ways to listen to Telehell than ever before. Of course, the usual ways, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and our website, telehell.lipsyn.com, but also these new places, including castbox.fm, podtail.com, listennotes.com, mytuner-radio.com, and blueberry, which is spelled B-U-L-B-R-R-Y.com. We'll have many more coming soon. And as always, don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe, and share on our social feeds. Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast.